According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me as we get started tonight in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is day 76 in our Through the Bible reading schedule. So day 76 is... uh, Deuteronomy 10, 11, and 12. Those are the chapters we're going to be covering tonight. Picking up where we left off on Sunday as we were looking at uh, the material from day 75. How about that? Before we get started tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, once again this is our privilege and blessing to assemble tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this uh, through the Bible study that you brought us to and the blessing that we have this calendar year to be reading chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word through your text. Father, I thank you for the the big picture that uh, you're giving us this year as we we, uh, get the overview from Genesis to Revelation, Father. And I pray that as uh, we study to show ourselves approved that you would place within our memory these things that you would have for us to hold on to. And then when we come back in greater detail, Father, then I pray that that this big picture will be a benefit so that we can take every doctrine, every promise, every principle, and then we can connect them together in the framework of of your whole counsel. So Father, uh, this night is yours. I've got a lot of ground to cover as we do each night, but you've been so faithful to, uh, to provide. We just thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so day 76, let me make this slightly larger, Deuteronomy 10 through 12. We are continuing in the farewell discourses. The book of Deuteronomy is actually five farewell discourses that Moses gives as he prepares his physical death and departure from leading the nation of Israel. This is actually part of the second farewell address, and and actually it concludes it here in chapters uh, 10 and 11. When we get to chapter 12, we'll see the transition to the third uh, farewell discourse. So Moses' second farewell discourse continues with additional testimony to Israel's failures. And much of what he's reviewing is, again, a survey of how they blew it in the days gone by. And all of this is not to beat them up or fill them with guilt, but it is to admonish them that if they're not careful, they can blow it again moving forward. And right now they're on the verge of the conquest, they're on the verge of entering into the the promised land, and so this is the time to stay faithful. This is not the time to uh, return to their former ways. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 11. At that time the Lord said to me, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. He's kind of reviewing the, the history of their parents' generation back at the, the golden calf incident, the, the time when Moses came down from the mountain and he smashed that first set of tablets. So this is where he's, he's uh, picking up this uh, continued, it's, it's like a through the Bible series, it's a walkthrough that he's doing to review their history and their parents' history from the Exodus. So uh, verse 2 says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. He wrote on the tablets like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Now the sons of Israel set out from Beroth, B'nai, Jachan, to Moserah. And there Aaron died, and there he was buried. And Eliezer, his son, ministered as priest in his place. And from there they set out to, these are hard to pronounce, so forgive me, Gudgodah, and from Gudgodah to Jotbathah, a land of brooks of water, And at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve Him and to bless in His name until this day. Therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. 
And we'll see that when we get into the book of Joshua, when we see the conquest, and then as the land is divided and all the tribes receive an allotment, a, a portion of land for their tribe to dwell in, Levi will not receive any. No single land grant that's going to be given to Levi. Instead, they'll have cities. They'll have 48 cities that will be scattered throughout the 12 tribes. And we'll be uh, giving those details as well. Verses 10 and 11, finally, I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And so uh, continued reminiscence over the things they did well, the things they did not do so well, and, and the issues there. When we get to verses 12 through 22 then, Moses preaches to Israel a sermon of practical application. And this really does get highly practical. It's very applicable, uh, not only for Israel in the Old Testament, but for churches today and believers in the church age, applications that we can make as well. As we look at verses 12 through 14. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And so it's interesting as we look at this, realizing and not losing track of the fact that the context for this in the Old Testament how much of Leviticus do you see in this? How much of the, the ritual and the sacrifices and all of the, the things that we typically think of as Old Testament spirituality and we have to stop and remind ourselves, don't do that. What we think of as Old Testament spirituality is not Old Testament spirituality. It's Old Testament ritual. The ceremony and the ritual, which is shadow doctrine designed to teach reality, but it's not. The ritual is not the spiritual life. All right, those that could follow the ritual sometimes followed it better than anybody else in the world, and they were the least spiritual people in Israel. We're talking about the Pharisees and some of the other legalists that we get to when we see Jesus encountering them in the gospel. So don't think of the ceremonial life and the and the all of the uh, rituals and the calendar observances and all the festivals and all of that as spirituality. It is not. The spirituality is what we see here: walking humbly with your God. And, uh, you know, starting with, as you see in the outline there, under uh, point A, points one through five, the fear of the Lord. That's true in every stewardship. I don't care if we're talking about Old Testament Israel or New Testament church or millennial saints or the fullness of time after the millennium, uh, or even go back to Adam and Eve, go back to Gentiles before, before the Jews. And the fear of the Lord was always a component for any regenerate human being walking with God. Enoch walked with God. And uh, the fear of the Lord was a big component of his walk. And then it says walking in his ways. Then it says loving him. And that's curious too because that's that's right out of the law but it gets, at least in my thinking, maybe I'm the only one guilty of this, I get so overwhelmed by the goats and the bulls and the rams and the sheep and the blood and the and the fatty portions and the smoke and, and all of the, the animal ritual that maybe some of the bigger, weightier elements of the law get lost in, uh, in all the, the detail of the ritual. So the fear of the Lord, walking in His ways, loving Him, serving Him with total devotion. Serving Him with total devotion, as it says, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So it's not just externals, it's not just lip service, it's not a phony uh, service that's uh, you know trying to fake it. You can fake it with an earthly employer, you can fake it with human beings who think that you're a, a dedicated employee, uh, but you can't fake it with God. He knows if it's with all your heart and all your soul. And recognizing and submitting to absolute divine sovereignty. Recognizing and submitting to absolute divine sovereignty. And I think this is the issue here in terms of keeping the Lord's commandments and, uh, and then recognizing that the Lord your God, everything is His. Heaven and earth, heaven and the highest heaven, earth and all that is in it. God is the I Am and everything else that's not God is, uh, is only here because God willed it so. God created it. And so He's sovereign over everything that He has created. In verse 15, the admonishment is issued to not imitate the Exodus generation. 
So we see here, after he gets through this great exhortation we just finished with in 10 through 14, then he says, Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. And the parents had the chance. They were, they were at Kadesh Barnea, they sent the spies in there, they checked out the land, they observed that it was everything God said it was, and more. I think the and more includes the giants and the other problems that that they weren't expecting. and uh, But their faith uh, just didn't have the faith, didn't trust that God was going to make good on His promises and felt somehow that they were uh, unworthy or incapable of conquering. And so they failed. And because they failed, it cost the nation 40 years of non-production while uh, that generation passed away in the wilderness. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. I love that. What a statement. The humble believer before the Lord is the believer with a circumcised heart. You know, again, don't confuse the ritual with the reality. And the, the ritual that they would do on a, on a boy, a Jewish boy on, on the eighth day of his life, that was an external sign of the, of the covenant between God and Israel. But the, there was a reality behind that sign. And the reality is they're supposed to be a holy people and serving the holy God. And so the, the real circumcision is not of the flesh and not made by hands. Um, some of this language too we studied recently not too long ago in the Colossians material because this came up in the Colossians study. The, the spiritual circumcision that we have in Christ. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bride. And that title is so awesome. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So the believer with orientation to the justice of God will reflect that orientation through his own expression of justice. If you're maladjusted to who God is, then that has real effects here on earth. And, and we have perversions in our justice system and perversions in our, among our lawmakers and perversions in, in culture at large and our business practices because our culture has lost track of the fact that God is just and He is righteous and He is holy. And, uh, and everything that should be a reflection of God becomes instead uh, a reflection of fallen man or Satan or, or something else. I like these titles, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, um, you know, which are meaningless, of course, unless there are other gods and other lords, as there are. In the spirit realm, there are angels, there are principalities and powers, some that are even so mighty that they are called Elohim. They're called gods, and certainly compared to humans, they are godlike. Uh, but they're not, you know, omnipotent and, and eternal. They are created beings themselves. Um, I think we're clear on that when we call them gods, because the Bible calls them gods. There's still only one uh, absolute I am, and that is, of course, the creator God of heaven and earth. Verse 19 and then 20 through 22 wraps up the chapter. The believer with an orientation to the love of God will reflect that orientation through his own expression of love. So the same principle applies to any attribute of God you want to look at, whether it's righteousness, justice, holiness. Here in this case, it's love. Show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. We get to be reflections of God's love. We get to be conduits of God's love as he pours his love into us and then through us as we show love to others. Verses 20 through 22, the believer with an orientation to the omnipotence of God will reflect that orientation through his own expression of praise. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, you shall swear by His name. He is your praise, He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. Now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. They went down as a family. 400 years later, they come out as a nation. And they are now equipped. And they've, and they've been forged through hardship, birthed in the adversity of slavery, and then uh, matured through the, the adversity of the, of the wilderness wanderings. And so from their birthing and into their, their upbringing, uh, this is now an adult nation ready to conquer the land and, and set forth into the rest that, uh, that God is offering and that um, is available for them, assuming, of course, that they accept it by faith as their, as their parents fail to do. So we see 
those principles there. All right. So, and I hope the the pattern on this comes out um, when you see we're oriented and we reflect. We're oriented and we reflect. We're oriented and we praise. Okay, because we can't reflect the omnipotence of God by being omnipotent ourselves. No. All right. So we can do that with justice. We can reflect on God's justice. We can be oriented to His justice. We can reflect that justice by being just ourselves. We can reflect God's love, be oriented to His love, reflect that love. We can demonstrate love ourselves. Um, all of these things until we get to omnipotence. Okay, With omnipotence we can be oriented to God's omnipotence, but then we can't be omnipotent. We can't express omnipotence to others. All we can do is praise God and tell others about God's omnipotence so they can join us in our prayer meetings, they can join us in our dependence upon Him and uh, calling upon His omnipotence uh, day by day and moment by moment. All right, well that wraps up chapter 10. Watching the pacing on this and maybe we're going too quickly. <laughs> but we've got chapter 11 and 12 to go through too. And there's a lot here I want to get to, especially in chapter 11. So let's, let's deal with this. Because we're back to this love thing again. Okay? And you're thinking, what is all this love doing in the, in the Old Testament? It belongs there. Okay? It absolutely belongs there. And even though they're under law and we're under grace, nevertheless love continues to be the prime uh, command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we're, we're accustomed to those in the New Testament, but those New Testament passages are quoting the Old Testament. And so we shouldn't be shocked to, uh, to see them here. Crossing into chapter 11 then. Israel is commanded to function according to a doctrinal standpoint of love. So let's look at it here in verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, and, all, and that's Yahweh your Elohim, and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. So love is far more than just a, a, a statement, far more than just saying you love somebody. Uh, it's actually demonstrating that love. It's love in action, and the action of, uh, or the demonstrated love in action is the obedience to His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, His commandments. We can appreciate that. And this would be a, a marvelous time to stop and break down a doctrinal study on the vocabulary. We can't do that. <laughs> we can't do that. The 2022 is not a um, stop and break down a doctrine kind of year. We're on a we're on a roller coaster to get to Revelation by December 31st. So, um, but, you know, you can still hover a mouse over it and, and see the vocabulary there. Notice at the very bottom of the system tray, it pops up there. Same thing with statutes. Same thing with ordinances. The mishpat and the commandments. The mitzvah. In any event. That's a study for a different time. But love for God on the part of a believer produces a motivation for that believer to fulfill his charge, his work assignment. See, and we all have a charge, especially in the church age where every one of us is given a spiritual gift, where every one of us has a role to fulfill in the body of Christ. And uh, none of those roles is spectator. The roles that we have in the body of Christ are all serving capacity for uh, ministering to one another, the building up of one another in love. And so, um, you know, when you see a believer that has no interest in serving, a believer that has no interest in, uh, in uh, obeying the commands, or, or that's a believer that has very little love for the God who saved him and probably needs uh, to clear up some false teaching or have a better understanding of the teaching so as to foster the, the love response that uh, the Bible doctrine promotes. Love for God on the part of a believer produces a motivation for that believer to obey the whole counsel of God's Word. You know, statutes, ordinances, commandments, these, uh, yeah, that's a comprehensive view. It's like what Ephesians would talk about with the length and width and height and depth, that we, we're not uh, going to overlook a passage of Scripture because we don't like that part of the Bible, or uh, we're not going to pick and choose and cherry pick verses based upon what we think we're good at and what we can be legalistic and judgmental for uh, towards other believers who maybe uh, don't do so well as we do on that particular item. All right, moving on then to verses 2 through 4. Moses' message of application stresses the accountability this generation faces as they observed the Lord's mighty works. 
And they are accountable. Know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God. His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arms. So he he says, do you know who I'm speaking to? (laughs) Okay, did I say that right? Yes. The Lord says, do you know who I'm speaking to? I'm not speaking to your kids. I'm speaking to you. You, this adult generation who used to be kids back when I was speaking to your parents. Remember them? All right. Because you guys saw this. You guys have the opportunity to learn from what your parents failed in. So the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm, His signs, His, one, His works, which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, to the uh, king of Egypt, and to all His land. And what He did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when He made the waters of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them. And what He did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, I mean, each step of the way for 40 years, God has been so faithful. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. Remember that? They better remember that. Okay? But your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord, which he did. And this really does form an interesting survey all the way from the Exodus and the Red Sea all the way to Dathan and Abiram and every step in between. Kind of as a survey here I put in the notes under point A, B, and C in their youth observing the Exodus. And that's not, that's probably only about a third of the group that's still alive to this day. I I was trying to estimate uh, because remember after the Kadesh Barnea rebellion, anybody that was over 20 was was condemned. Anybody that was over 20 was told they, they weren't going to go into the land. Only those from 0 to 19 were going to go into the land. And so fast forward 40 years and recognize that those people are now 40 to 59 years old. And then everybody that has been born in the last 40 years. And uh, And so at what point then, you know, what's the ratio of of those that weren't even born yet at Kadesh Barnea, um, compared to those that were born but under 20. And there's different demographic estimates on that that are widely divergent depending on what the, the, the top number is that they're estimating with. Okay, Three million people can have a lot of babies in 40 years. Uh, but assuming that it's not three million people, if it's a much smaller number of people, how many babies are going to be born in 40 years? And what's the, the general population when they, when they do conquer? Contrasting the chapter 1 uh, census with the chapter, or muster with the chapter 26 muster, I think it's definitely smaller. So uh, anyway, observing the Lord's mighty works in their youth, observing the Exodus. That's verses 2 through 4. In their youth, observing their parents' failure verses 5 and 6, because Dathan and Abiram and the opening up of the land. And then um, in their adulthood, observing their own failures and their own victories. And their own victories. Thirdly, the Lord describes the promised land with a contrast to the land of Egypt, verses 8 through 12. Deuteronomy 11, verses 8 through 12. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it so that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Now in a lot of ways, Egypt has a lot going for it. The Nile River was its lifeline and they had agriculture and they had capacity for food production that for, for millennia was actually a, a marvel to much of the world. And, uh, and God says what he's got in store for Israel is above and beyond anything Egypt could, uh, could even dream of. So again, you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. 
So it's a different hydrology, it's a different agriculture, it's a different climate, it's a different set of circumstances. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. So there's, uh, there's direct divine observation 12 months a year, year round, round the clock, and um, different, uh, different blessings there. Again, I'd love to stop and give more detail on that, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> Verses 13 through 17, the Lord promises temporal life, agricultural prosperity, military prosperity as a blessing slash reward for Israel's humble obedience. Now, I want to be cautious with this because believers today, they, they, they abuse this. They, they, they try to claim this as if it's analogous to our circumstances in the church. And, and that's a problem, okay? And it feeds into a mindset of prosperity theology. It feeds into a mindset of, well, I've been a good person. Why doesn't God give me good things? And uh, that's why we've got to be very cautious. When you're drawing the analogy between Israel and the church, have a huge note of caution, particularly on those items that are temporal, Israel was a temporal people, an earthly people in the midst of other earthly peoples. And much of the the reflection of that is in earthly terms. Not so with the church. Absolutely not so with the church. So you'll see what I mean as we work from verse 13 down through verse, uh, really down through verse 25, but there's a little gap in the middle there. We're going to handle verses 13 through 17 and then verses 22 through 25 before we back up to, to catch that little bit of a gap. All right, verse 13, It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. So just stopping right there, you see why we can't adapt this to the church. The church is a heavenly people. What is our land? Okay, do we have a holy land? Do we have we are a heavenly people, not an earthly people. Israel was an earthly people with earthly territory and Gentile neighbors. Anyway, promises for Israel, the early and late rains, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass to your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Now keep in mind, these are the meteorological and agricultural and and all of these land-based promises are being given by God to his people in his land. None of that applies today. The United States of America is not a theocracy. We are not a covenant nation. This is not the land in which God, uh, the Shekinah glory of, of Yahweh Elohim dwells in a tabernacle. None of that. There are no modern day parallels to this. So, uh, you know, the, the whole aspect about... Uh, I don't know, it just it gets abused and, and, and it, it shows up in Christian radio programs, it shows up in Christian bookstores, it shows up on the refrigerator magnets and knickknacks and, and whatnot. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. And that's not, I mean, it's a great verse. I'll, don't get me wrong, I'm not mocking the verse, but it's not our verse. It's not for the United States of America, it's for Israel. We've got to be clear on that. Likewise, if you're doing one of those Jabez prayers, that's not. All these trends, all these uh, fads that sweep through churchianity. All right, so the Lord is promising temporal life, agricultural prosperity, also military prosperity. In verses 22 through 25, if I skip down a little bit. If you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. And every place in which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your border will be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates as far as the western sea. 
And tremendous promises here. No man will be able to stand before you. The Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. So this is tremendous military victory that's being promised here as a consequence to their faithfulness to love him, to serve him, to obey him in, uh, in every detail. You might want to bookmark this passage and see, uh, you know, refer to it when uh, we get into Joshua and Judges. Uh, and when we actually get to the narrative of the conquest, they uh, are far less uh, successful than uh, they could have been. Far less successful than they should have been. And I think that's an indication that they were far less faithful than, uh, than they ought to have been in their service. Moses stresses how vital it is to raise up children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's the part I skipped there, verses 18 through 21. So we can back up a little bit. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So there's nothing wrong with having, you know, Scripture verse reminders on little things. I hope I wasn't mocking the knickknacks earlier. The knickknacks are fine. Just keep them biblical. Keep them in context. And make sure the verses you're applying apply to you and your family and the church. And we'll, uh, you know, they'll be very edifying. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. I know that's almost word for word like it was back in chapter 6, wasn't it? Chapter 6 and something. Yeah, chapter 6 and verse 7. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. All right, so unless the sky is falling, we should, uh, we should be serving the Lord, we should be training up our children. And then, by the way, they're going to memorize Scripture faster than you will anyway, so <laughs> train them. These children have these minds, these memories, these, you know, they soak up information like sponges. And, uh, and, and, and God has designed them to trust you as their parents so that you can lead them in the, in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What a blessing and a, and a privilege that we have. All right. Talked about the military victories. Keep in mind too, does any of that apply to the United States of America? Well, we're not his covenant nation. We're not being granted his covenant land. We're not being tasked with anything of the sort. We don't have uh, the, the, the high priesthood and the prophets and the, all the whole structure of the earthly theocracy that was Israel and will be Israel again in the, in the tribulation, the millennium and beyond. Right now, Israel's on hold while he works out the heavenly uh, people, that is the body of Christ, the day and age in which we live. We've got to be clear on these things. Okay, so the last bit of chapter 11 Moses concludes his second farewell discourse laying out a choose-you-this-day type message of blessings or cursings. And much of what he's saying here almost uh, resonates. I think Joshua had this uh, speech in mind when Joshua gave his famous choose-you-this-day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. You're familiar with that text in, in Joshua chapter 24, right? It's on all the doormats and refrigerator magnets and household knickknacks that you buy in the Christian bookstores. Um, the, uh, but I think Joshua is actually kind of plagiarizing a little bit, ripping off, uh, uh, I'm not blaming him, everybody does, I rip off Ralph all the time. Anybody that's following somebody is going gonna, is gonna to glean things from their predecessor. Um, but this choose you this day type message, he says, see I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And right away we know where this is going. Because this is so common to human experience. This is so common to so much else throughout Scripture and then even in secular life and other uh, written literature and, and other forms of... Uh, of uh, I mean, you can find Greek dramas and Greek comedies and tragedies that, that employ a similar uh, motif, if you will. Okay? You know, you can almost hear Clint Eastwood saying, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Or, you know, I mean, 
it, it, the, the speaker is just laying it out for his audience. And it says there's, there's two ways we can do this. And this is what God's doing here. I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And then the whole, of course, doctrine of listening, I think that's Shema. Yes, not only is it listening, but it's humbly listening with the attitude of, of willingness to you know, obey and do something with what you're listening to. Um, paying heed might be a better way. Uh, but paying heed to the commandments, listening and intending to follow through uh, of the commandments of the Lord which I am commanding you today. So that's the one way we can go. That's the road for blessing. Or the cursing. Or and the curse. If you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. See, the biggest problem with the, the promised land, the biggest problem with the land of Canaan is the Canaanites, okay? And uh, as soon as they're gone, then the land can be cleansed and have its rest and, and can be the land of Israel and, and pure and holy and, and everything God intended it for. But the Canaanites that have been perverting the land and polluting the land and, and God has been giving them opportunity to repent, He's actually gave them that 400 years of grace in which to repent and they would not repent that the iniquity of the Amorite was, uh, was complete by virtue of their non-repentance. And so um, the, uh, the uh, wisdom of God in giving them those opportunities and then ending those opportunities by giving the land now to, to Israel. This is God's sovereignty at work. It is not um, the, the moral monster that, that people today will rail against and they hate uh, they will accuse God of being unfair because He's ordering a genocide, and they're 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 um, you know killing these people and the men, the women, the children, and all the rest. Now they're only killing them if they stay and fight. Okay, they're free to flee, they're free to run. They can uh, as long as they depart the land, they can they can live wherever. But when they stay and fight, they're going to die, and that's the that's the reality of it there. So, uh, and and beyond the fact that God's not the moral monster, these Canaanites are absolutely the the godless, pagan, heathen. The things they're doing with, with child sacrifice, the things they're doing with uh, the uh, unrestrained fornication and everything else, the idolatry, the, the whole territory is just absolutely perverted with all, with all three things that will pollute a land. So blessing or cursing, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And for Israel, they've got the choice to make. And they're going to keep making that choice for from this point all the way through until their stewardship is suspended and then it'll, they'll resume with these conditions. Uh, under Mosaic law, under the covenant of conditions that's given after the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, under Mosaic law, they are forever in this no-win scenario of if this, then that, if this, then that, and their, their humanity and their sin natures are going to betray them every time. The history of Israel is one failure to the next, to the next, to the next, with an occasional smattering of small successes here and there. Okay? And, uh, and just stay tuned. You'll see that in Joshua, you see that in Judges. You're going to see that throughout the, the Old Testament record. Um, so stay tuned for that. The entire issue is laid before Israel for them to respond to on a volitional basis. The blessings and cursings are established and scheduled for recitation on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And so uh, when they get there, this uh, either-or approach is going to be recited. Verses 29 and following here. Verse 29 says, It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. What does he mean by that? It means the tribes are going to divvy up and they're going to stand on these two mountains and they're going to recite these blessings and these cursings. And we'll have scripture on that here uh, coming up. All right. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way toward the sunset, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oaks of Morah? 
For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. So uh, we have it given here really in the earliest sense. Uh, We'll have more detail when we get to chapter 27. Specifically when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim. And he lists those tribes Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. Those six tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people for the curse on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. So you're going to have six and six on those two mountains. There's a valley that runs right between them and uh, the city of Shechem actually down there in the, uh, in the saddle of that, uh, of that valley. Then uh, actually we'll see it happen in uh, Joshua chapter 8. And uh, Joshua will instruct them and they will actually do what Moses told them to do and they will recite the blessings and the cursings and then they'll have a national Bible class. And uh, afterward he will read all the words of the law and the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of all Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So here's a national Bible class and Joshua gets to read every word that Moses wrote. So we'll get to that when we get to Joshua chapter 8. All right. One more chapter for tonight. Chapter 12. Back to Deuteronomy and now for chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins Moses' third farewell discourse. At least the way I've outlined it. I showed you earlier how different people have outlined the book in different ways. Uh, But this is the the meat of the book. This is the longest of the farewell discourses. It starts in chapter 12 and it goes all the way to chapter 26. So it is the bulk of the book of Deuteronomy that consists of this third farewell discourse. The longest section of Moses' farewell. Highlights the central worship that ultimately Jerusalem will enjoy. And it really does. It centers on all the aspects of worship. So uh, echoes from Leviticus are coming back tonight. And echoes from Numbers and other things we're going to see related to the need for, for purity. Starting with get rid of the idols. The first activity Israel must be concerned with is the uh, total destruction of Canaanite idolatry. So let's read verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. So beyond just wiping out the population, making sure that no Canaanites remain. If there's any Canaanites that flee, let them go. But if they stay and fight, kill them. Okay? Or if they stay and don't fight, if they stay and try to sue for peace or whatever, they, they don't have the option to stay. They have to go. So not only are we removing all the Canaanites, we're also removing all of the, um, the worship places, tearing them all down. So that includes the high places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. If you ever want to study some of these, you're, you're in for an eye-opening experience. All of these are, are places of pagan worship, places of pagan ritual prostitution, uh, all of the fertility rituals that they acted out in their uh, fornicating uh, priesthoods. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. And so all of these places and all the names, they're going to need new names. They're going to have to get rid of the, the pagan names and, and, and give biblical names, give names that honor uh, the Lord. Remember when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the, the children to Babylon, was the first thing he did was he gave them pagan names. And they get renamed after the names of the gods of the, of the Babylonian uh, pantheon. And uh, tried to teach them the ba- they did teach them the Babylonian language and put them in Babylonian schools and and gave them the Babylonian diet and everything that that was alien to what they grew up with to to get their mindset away from serving Yahweh Elohim and 
and uh, into a, a Babylonian frame of mind. So this is the reverse of that. God wants every shred of Canaanite culture, particularly this idolatry culture, it has to be obliterated. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. So the first activity Israel must be concerned with is the total destruction of Canaanite idolatry. Um, spoiler alert, they don't do well with this. Okay, They don't do well with this. They don't remove all the nations from their midst. They're going to be capped with constant thorns in their, in their sides for their history. Uh, the high places are going to stay, not only are they going to stay in place, they're going to stay in operation. And the Jewish people are going to start participating in some of these things. The Canaanite idolatry is abhorrent in the eyes of God. This is done because any remnants of Canaanite idolatry will become stumbling blocks for Israel. When Israel is established in the land, there will be one place where the Lord may be sought as His dwelling. And so when they're destroying all of the multiplied places, they're going to be setting up one specific special place. Verse 5 says, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. Now if that seems cryptic, if that seems uh, like it's not spelling it out, okay, there's a reason for that. And we have to forget that we know what we know at this point because we're working our way through sequentially, okay? But we all know He's talking about Jerusalem, okay? It's just the word Jerusalem is not in that text. And we only know because we know the rest of the story. We know what's coming in the Old Testament. We know in the New Testament. We know where the temple is going to be built. And we know all that. But with hindsight, just reading this verse from the standpoint of Joshua and the, the people of Israel, they don't know. They don't know where the place is going to be. They know the boundaries. They know the, the rough territory that they've got to conquer. And then somewhere in there, God's going to make a, a, a residence for His name the place which the Lord your God will choose to establish His name there for His dwelling. He takes up residency. He takes up residency. Now, if you are using the Logos Bible software, you can see, if you right-click the word place, you'll notice the top right corner there it says place Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay? Because Logos knows that's the place God's talking about. And you and I know that's the place God's talking about. And you have underneath that English word place, you have the, uh, the lemma there, the makom, that's the Hebrew for place or location. You have the root, you have the morphology, you have the Strong's number, 4725 if you care. Um, you have the sense, and you have the specific place And it goes ahead and tags it as Jerusalem because that's what he's talking about. Talking about Jerusalem. And this is actually very useful because you can select Jerusalem the place and you can bring it up in a fact book, you can bring it up in an atlas, you can even search all your Bible for everywhere in the Bible that Jerusalem the place is referenced. Okay, And keep in mind, only a small set of that actually uses the word Jerusalem. A lot of times I could maybe it uses Zion or it uses the city of David or it uses uh, the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. Okay? That's a ton of words. But all of those words together form a, a, a phrase that applies to Jerusalem. Okay? And so this is actually quite a useful feature to, to search for a specific place no matter what it's called. Anywhere in the Bible. You might remember back in Genesis 14 when we were introduced to Melchizedek, he was the king of Salem. Same place. Okay? Same place. Salem's a shorter name for Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the king of of, um, Salem, came out and worshipped Abraham. Worshipped the God Most High with Abraham. Anyway, so... Uh, I just wanted to show that feature to you just so you can see um, how that works and and give you the option of things that you can be searching for. Because you can search for the word Jerusalem, you can search for the Hebrew Yerushalim, you can search for the the Greek. But keep in mind there's a couple of different Hebrew spellings and a couple of different Greek spellings. 
Or you can just search for the, the place itself as the place has been tagged, no matter what uh, term is used to refer to it. All right. While Israel is establishing in the land, there will be one place the Lord may be sought at his dwelling. Now, while Israel is traveling, of course, the tabernacle is portable. And the tabernacle is where he dwells. And that's the, the, the tent of, of meeting and, the, and his dwelling place. When he tabernacles among us, he's dwelling among us. And that was what the tabernacle was. But it was very portable because they were portable for 40 years, not limited to one place. Once Israel is settled, the tabernacle, that is the dwelling, will be settled and will be replaced by the temple. This will be the one place where the Lord may be sought, where he establishes his name for his dwelling. But keep in mind, there's going to be a good 400 years in between when they settle and when, they, when Solomon builds the temple. And in the, that intervening period, the, mainly the period of the judges, there's going to be... Um, uh, the, the tent will be established at Shiloh. We're going to talk about what's the significance of Shiloh. And uh, the, the priesthood will function there in a, in a tent that just gets older and older and older to the point that David gets embarrassed just looking at it. So stay tuned as we get to those issues. This passage must be compared and contrasted to other passages that do allow, they do allow for other sacrifices to be made elsewhere. Notice this is not a prohibition against sacrificing in other places, but this is a statement that this is where he can be sought out, that this is where you can find him, this is where you can, uh, and where he dwells. That's a, that's a big difference, okay? Because there are many other altars and sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament besides the national sacrifices at the tabernacle or the national sacrifices at the temple. And uh, the one that we just looked at, there's going to be an altar set up at Mount Ebal. So when they do the blessings and the cursings on those two mountains, on the mountain of blessing, they have to set up an altar there. And they're going to offer burnt offerings there on that altar. Uh, Gideon is going to build some altars. In Judges chapter 6, Manoah is going to build an altar. Who's Manoah? That's Samson's dad. He builds an altar. In Judges chapter 13, Samuel's going to build an altar. In 1 Samuel 7, 17. So the fact that God is going to have his Shekinah glory dwelling in one certain place and the fact that the tabernacle gets replaced by the temple and there is one specific place for his dwelling and his calling upon does not limit other um, altars that may be set up. Again, he commands them in these various places at these various times. I just want us to be aware of that because I think some people, they... uh, I think they abuse this text. But this one place is where he can be sought, where you can call upon his name, where normally the nation will bring the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the tithes, the contributions, the votive offerings, free will offerings, firstborn of your herd and your flock. You and your household shall eat, be- eat before the Lord your God because that's where he dwells. So all of your feasting that happens in his presence has to be at the temple. All right. This unique location of the Lord's dwelling, therefore, relates to his presence among his covenant nation and the location for them to come before him as a nation for their national gatherings. Tribes may do more local things, or families may do more local things, or individuals may do more local things. But when they come together as a nation... Once the temple is built, that's where they have to come to. So there's more details on that too here when we get to verses 6 through 14. You've read a couple of these already. Um, pick up with verse 8. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That's a problem. Okay? And that's, that was really their experience through the wilderness wanderings, and that will continue to be their experience in the book of Judges. We're going to see that phrase again. It comes up uh, more than once in the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. For you have not yet, as, as yet, come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. The promise of rest. Remember, we, we studied this doctrine in the book of Hebrews, the promise of rest. And Joshua did not give them rest. That's why there remains a promise of rest, still spoken of. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord 
your God is giving you to inherit. And he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Then it shall come about in that place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions, choice votive offerings, which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So it's going to be the place for their national worship. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. Those pagan ones have to be torn down. But the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I commanded you. All right, in point five, other modifications occur once the traveling nation becomes the established nation. (laughs) Okay, and yeah, when you settle down, things are different. You go from being, uh, uh, you know, transitory to being stationary. And, uh, you know, since they left Egypt, they haven't stopped in one place longer than I don't know what the longest is they spent in any one camp, but they've been mobile for 40 years. Now they're going to be settled down, and they're going to be settled down in their tribal allotments. And so verses 15 through 28 is going to start to spell out some of these things. And uh, yeah, they won't have to, they're not going to have to uh, pour out the blood at the temple. Remember when they were wandering, they had to make sure that every animal they slaughtered, the blood was poured out in the in the view of the of the, the gate of the tabernacle just to keep any uh, uh, idolatry or false worship from taking place. Once they're settled in the land, then they're okay. They can, they can fix their meals and they can cook in Asher and Dan and Naphtali and all these other tribes. They don't have to run down to the temple to, uh, to, to butcher their dinner. So in any of your gates you can do this and, and uh, the animals that you hunt, the animals that you eat, you still can't eat blood. You still have to pour it out on the ground. You still have to dispose of it appropriately. That's going to be a procedure. And then, uh, yeah, other details that come into place here. Verse 18, you shall eat them before the Lord your God by the place which the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter. So if you want to have a sacred meal in the presence of the Lord, you're you're traveling to, uh, to the place he determines, Jerusalem, which we find out later. All right. Also be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. It's neat the way God scatters the the Levitical cities throughout the tribes and keeps the Levites close to all of the tribes so that uh, every tribe has Bible teaching available, has the spiritual reminders of of the uh, Levitical priesthood right there in their neighborhood. All right. I am just running out of time. The chapter concludes as it began with the emphasis on not being ensnared by Canaanite idolatry. Verses 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. Understand the imperative is to dispossess them. Which means they no longer possess the land. They can die or they can flee. Either way, they, they have been dispossessed. They will no longer be the proprietors of this property. So they're going to dispossess them and dwell in their land, what used to be their land. It's now your land. Beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You know, And why would they want to do that? Well, the carnal mind would have a lot of fun with what the carnal religion does. And, uh, and they're going to have evidence of that. They're going to have reminders of that. They're going to have the, 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 the places are still going to be there before they destroy them and they, they, the thought will cross their mind, wow, what was this used for? Wow, that looks like fun or whatever. Okay? And the carnal mind would, would, would spot some differences and say, wow, my God doesn't have places like this. And uh, no, he does not. And get that thought out of your mind, okay? And especially on the the Asherim, on the, 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 you know, it's like I grew up in the Northwest and we had totem poles in different places, right? Because they were, uh, we didn't have ferocious horse riding Comanches or, or Sioux or any, I mean, we, we had some pretty pathetic Indians out there. They were fishermen and they were 
um, whatever. But they did have some pretty in- incredible totem poles that they would build out of these tall pine trees. Anyway, don't be fascinated by what you see on the totem poles. Okay? And don't try this at home. All right, well that wraps up chapter 12. Notice it included child sacrifice, included all the abominations. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You know, children are expendable when uh, adults are having their adult fun. So whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to or take away from it. You've got to have the reverence for the Word of God. We're, we, we study, we, we break it down, we explain it, but we don't change it. We're not His editors. Alright, well that wraps up today. We'll return tomorrow night for day 77 in, uh, in Through the Bible. When we get to day 77, we will have chapter 13, 14, 15, and a portion of chapter 16. More instructions from Moses. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for, again, this series. I thank you for the daily Bible reading that we're doing in our homes and uh, the blessing to be able to reinforce what we're reading with what we're teaching, what we're studying. Father, thank you for uh, this Through the Bible year. I pray that you continue to bless it, continue to provide abundantly uh, beyond all we could ask or think. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.